good question. The Sunday gathering is where we have the most oversight and control. And what I mean by that is we can't be everywhere at once. So the conversations that are happening between church members in text messages or over coffee or even everything that's happening in community groups or discipleship groups, we're not there for all of that. Um, we can help to put good structures in place and help them to launch well and, and that sort of thing. But we're not everywhere at once. So I, so I guess, so to answer your question, the, the, the easiest place to, def, to defend the gospel from everything else, where we have the most ability to do that, is the Sunday gathering. Because, and that, so that's why we very intentionally plan and structure. Because that's one area where we can say, when the church gathers, we, we can make sure um, that the integrity of the gospel is preserved. Whereas it's a little bit harder during the week, you know, in all of everything else the church has going on. Even with that, you can mitigate, you know, you're very careful about who you put in charge to lead community groups and discipleship groups, and you maintain good communication with all of your leaders. Um, yeah, so at the end of the day, you can't protect the gospel everywhere on every front, which we want to, <laughs> um, and we'd love to be able to. We do the best we can Sunday, and we try to build it into the culture with how we're raising up leaders to be influential throughout the week. Um, at the end of the day, we, we don't have the control we think we have. Even with Sunday, we don't have the control we think we have. The Lord either works in hearts or he doesn't um, and draws people into the gospel or he doesn't. So, so that's the second. So one, I would just say do the best you can with Sunday and do the best you can to raise up leaders who will have integrity throughout the week. But the, the other side of that coin is just remember that um, you, you are never going to win a heart for the gospel. Only the Spirit does that. So, so uh, what I'm saying is it's also just a huge exercise in trust. So that's kind of a non-answer. I don't know. I, I, I think you, just, you do the best you can with the resources God gives you, and, and, you, just, and you trust him. And, uh, and I don't mean for that to be a cop-out answer. I, just, I, really, I really think that's it. Because some people who you think are just absolutely faithful and at the dead center of everything... They, they leave on a moment's notice over something silly, and you're going, whoa, where? You know, you, the, the relationship is in a very different place from where you thought it was. And that's, that's all, that's, there's some sort of disconnect between the gospel and their, and their heart there. So I don't know. I don't know. Um, be careful who you lay hands on to become other leaders. I'll tell you, that's a mistake I've made personally. Say it a little louder, I'm sorry. <laughs> on mega churches? That's an excellent question. And, uh, oh. Yeah, oh, yeah, sure. So understand that much of what I'm going to say is my opinion. Um, our church is about 120 people on a Sunday. Um, and we are already looking to plant again. Um, I, I've never been a part of a mega church. I was raised in small churches. So that, so one, that's what I'm used to. And two, I think it's not impossible. Some churches do it. But the larger a church gets, 
the more difficult shepherding becomes. And the reason I say that is if we're looking to Jesus as our, as our model for a shepherd, he says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. They hear my voice, you know, and, and so I think that there's something quite um, direct and literal that we can take from that is we need to know our sheep. And so when the church becomes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, it just it becomes very difficult to know your sheep, and as those of you who, who preach have preached regularly, you know that if if you and I both pick the sentence, we're both going to preach Matthew ten. But to differ to you to your sheep and me to mine, the main truths will still be there, but they're going to be different sermons, because you know your sheep, and because I know my sheep. So so my I guess my thought is just that. The more difficult it becomes to know your sheep, the harder, the harder it becomes to shepherd effectively. So, but at the same time, like I think of um, the Sovereign Grace Church mm -hmm. in uh, Glen Mills, Pennsylvania, where Mark Prater, our director, he's one of the elders there. It's a huge church, way too big for me. I mean, it's, it's I don't know, I think it's like a 15, 1,500 person church, but they have like 11 or 12 elders who are, have kind of divided up the congregation. Um, and also, because they're so huge and they have so many resources, they've planted, I don't know how, I think they've planted like 11 churches in the last 20 years, which is pretty great. You know, 50 people and an elder, go. 50 people and an elder, go. And so they've, they've done some excellent work that their size has allowed them to do. More, more, where I would personally be very careful to guard is, well, my, my father put it this way. My father's a pastor as well. I think I mentioned that. But he said, when the church gets so big, that the, pa that the pastor does not know the names of the little children, then maybe it's too big. Like, you need, you need to know your people. So whether, whether or not you divide the congregation up into multiple, like this elder oversees here and this one here, okay. I, I, I personally, at that point, would rather plant a church. Um, personally. I'm not saying that churches that, that get larger are wrong. I'm not saying that at all. That, that, that's probably fine. Uh, so maybe some of that has to do with, and understand in my context, the, aver the size of the average church in Montana is maybe 50 or 60 people. Um, so for us to be a church of 120 people, we, we're already making a plan to plant again. But that's, that's kind of specific to our context, so maybe that matters as well. So I don't know if it's a right or wrong, I, I can just tell you my preference, but I don't know, what do you think? So in other words, are you saying, like, in some places, even not far from here, churches, for safety reasons, they can't have large gatherings, they can't be loud? Yeah. 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 I think, I think that the Lord is big enough to, to meet us there. And I think you do the best you can. You know, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it, you know, do it all for the glory. Do it all for the glory of God. I think you apply wisdom to a situation, and for this church to meet regularly and consistently, it's this is what it has to look like. We have we have to be quiet. We can only meet for half an hour. I mean, whatever you know. Um, I think you do the best you can with what you have. I, I think that's that's what the Lord asks of us to be as faithful as we can in whatever situation He puts us in. So. Um, 
So again, yeah, that's where context comes into play. If, you're, if you are in a place where you can have a public church, that it can be loud and everything, I, do it. Absolutely. That's not every situation, though, as you know. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's highly situational. It's very situational, I think. But yeah, so I don't think churches are right or wrong. They do what they have to do based on their context, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Let me, let me give you one more example. In, in the United States, obviously, we're free, we're free to gather publicly and freely, everything. So I don't understand. When people in the United States, I knew one pastor. He, he, he came to a church in the town next to mine. It, the church was already established. It has its own building. It's been in that town for 100 years. It's, it's very established. He decided, no, we're going to sell the church building, and, and, and we're going to divide into three different house churches. And I said, why? You don't have, we don't have to do that here. Here you have the opportunity to be public and to be present and to, be, and to interact with the, the neighborhood. Some places do need to hide and go underground, but we don't here. And so he was, he was doing it just because he thought, I don't know what he thought, maybe he thought it was more spiritual or something. But he didn't. He, but it was just—it was confusing to the town. It was a small town of eight thousand people. They're all rural people. They're conservative people, and so they are used to churches gathering. And so, why do you take your church and start meeting in people's basements? You don't have to do that. I—I I think he was doing. I don't know why he was doing it. I could speculate, but in that context, I thought that was inappropriate. If—if if you have the opportunity to be a public witness, you should. Um, yeah. No, 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 this was a man in my town, in, in the town next to mine, yeah. Yeah, I cannot, I cannot vouch for Francis Chan <laughs> on, on that particular issue, I cannot. Yeah. So um, how, how and where churches meet is not one size fits all for the entire world. In some places, it's probably better and wiser to have a small church that meets maybe privately, other places, maybe a large church publicly. You have to discern your situation and context and seek the Lord. What, what is the best way to serve the brothers and sisters and to reach this community? Yeah, you'll need to think through that. In, in, my, setting, in my setting, smaller churches are better. I, I, have, no, I have no problem saying that. They're more, they're more appropriate. They're going to reach people better because they, we all exist in small communities where I live. I was telling some of you, again, Montana is the fourth largest state by geography in America. It has the fourth largest as far by land, but we only have one million people in the entire state. And uh, so very, very rural. So it does not, it, it's very odd for a church to have more than even 150 people or 200 people. It's very odd, very rare. It's much more common for a small town to have a church of 70 to 100 people. How do I choose elders? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. The way, the way we identify who our next elders will, will be, we give men in the church opportunities to practice leading, basically, and we see how they do. Well, one, you want, to, you want to observe a man for his character and his morality. I mean, the scripture gives us so many qualifications for an elder um, in terms of how he, how he governs his family, all of these things. So you pay attention to that. So what we do, like I said, we, we have community groups. They meet in people's homes. 
during the week to talk more about the text from Sunday, to pray together. They always share a meal together. And we, if there is a man who we think, yeah, he, I, I think he could be an elder someday, we ask him, will you lead a community group? And if he says, oh, no, no, I don't want to lead anything, we say, okay, that's our answer. If he can't lead a group of 8 to 14 people, he's not going to be a shepherd over the entire church. So we give him that opportunity. Yeah, I think I'll lead a community group. Okay. So we teach him how, we show him. And then it's, it's kind of like um, we say that our community groups are like mini church. <laughs> They're like our small church. So we, we watch and we observe how does he shepherd this small group of people in his community group? How does he care for them in that and, um, and we meet with them regularly. We meet with our community group leaders once per month. We all get together for a meal, the elders with the community group leaders. And if a man sh- demonstrates that he, um, that he can lead and shepherd a small group of people, if the time is right, we would approach him and say, what do you think about entering into church leadership? And again, the first qualification for an elder is the man has to, he has to want to do it. Uh, scripture says, if a man aspires to the office of elder. He aspires to a good thing. So if someone said, oh, you know, I don't really want to do that, but I will if you want me to, we say, no, 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 no. You, you, you need to want to. Because uh, like we talked about earlier today, not from compulsion, not from obligation. He has to desire, yes, I love these people and I want to help shepherd them. Okay. And so then we have something to work with. And so, so Sovereign Grace has really great ordination standards. Um, that we start at that point uh, to make sure the man is in a good place theologically and as far as his character goes it's it's a long process it takes about one year to finish the ordination process usually with sovereign grace and it's very good so so that's what we do we give them an opportunity to lead in a community group and we see how they do and if they do well then we would we would ask them to to take the next step Uh, my dad my dad has many sayings one of them is all you can do is run the flag up the pole and see who salutes. <laughs> in other words, he's, you know, you, you, you put a, a flag up the pole and, and pay attention and see who stops it. So he's saying, give them an opportunity and see who, see who takes it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. And I, that's one thing I really appreciate about Sovereign Grace. They have, they have a really good system for, for that. Yes, yeah, we, we, we do not rotate them. We do not do that. Some churches do that. It's not, that's not common. I don't think any church in Sovereign Grace does that. Um, so no, we do not rotate them. Um, I have seen that that's common in a lot of um, rural churches in Montana, but w- we take the opinion more that if God makes somebody to be an elder, that, that they are an elder and... Um, if someone wants to step away from from being an elder, they say, "This is too much," or "I have too much." You know, I need to take care of my family more, or something. Okay, yeah, we, we would let somebody step away, and maybe think about bringing them on later. But we don't have like, um, you know, you are an elder for three years and then you take one year off, or or, or anything like that.
general, in general, I agree with him. Uh, I I don't think that churches are wrong if they have multiple services. I I would not say they are in sin. But what what I would say is I do think it is best or ideal if a church can have one gathering. And that's okay. Um, as a pastor, that would stress me out. Honestly, this would to have two different music teams, two different congregations, really two different two different cultures, depending on who is there. I, I would. Oh, God bless you. Oh, thank you so much. I, I think that would be difficult for me as a pastor um, because I would. I think I would feel like I was shepherding two different flocks. Now, maybe some men God has equipped to do that. I, I think I would have a hard time personally. So if, in my opinion, I would rather have two, I would rather see two small churches um, th- than, than one big church that had to meet separately because then, then the people don't even know one another necessarily in the two different gatherings. So again, that's just my opinion. I know, I know good churches and very godly, faithful men who pastor churches with multiple gatherings. And that's okay. I remember the the evangelical free church in my town. Uh, the pastor was going to be out of town, and he asked me, "Hey, would you preach for me on Sunday?" And on, on this Sunday, I said, "Yeah, sure, I can do that." And on Saturday, I, I called him. I said, "Hey, what time? What time is your service?" He said, "Well, the first one is at 8. <laughs> I said, "Okay, so you have two. So the second." He goes, "Well, the second's the second's at 10. And the third one's at 11. And I was, oh, oh my goodness. I, I preached three times back to, and I got, I got sick that day. Like I
is there may be other Christians in this city. They're not unbelievers, but they are outsiders to this church, but they, but they come to visit. That, that's interesting to me. So that, that's an argument from inference. But um, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know at one point, I don't know at what point the cities started having multiple church bodies. I don't know. I wonder if the priority of the early church was establish a church in each city first, and then they grew from there. I don't know. Um, I do know that, again, if Ephesians 3 is true, that it is through the church that the, it, that the wisdom of God is made known. Um, more churches, more healthy churches, is better than less. Have you, have you, do people make the argument that there should be one church per city? People, people do? Really? What, what we can say for certain, Jesus did not finish building his church in the first century. So, I don't believe he, so he did not intend for a church in Ephesus and Philippi and Antioch and Corinth and Rome and, and that's it, you know. You know. Um, so it's kind of, because there is so much about the early church that we should model after, I believe. Um, as we continue to plant churches. Um, I say when, when we talk about different towns or cities to plant churches in, people say, well, aren't there already good churches there? I say, yeah, probably. That's not the point. Is every person in that city a worshiping, a person who worships Jesus? No? Then there's room for more churches. It's my opinion. I'm wording that very strongly on purpose. I just think we need to think about church planting that way. There's room for more churches until Jesus returns. But, yet, but it is, anytime within a city or a town, there can be an expression of unity among true believers. I, th I think that's excellent. I think that's excellent. I yeah, absolutely. Good. These are hard things to think through. These are good things to think through. I had one late girl tell me, oh, you guys are part of Sovereign Grace. We love Sovereign Grace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, why don't you, you guys want to come on a Sunday? No, we don't, we don't believe in the organized church. And we don't understand why every Christian in Bozeman can't just all be a part of the same gathering. And I'm just like, who would organize that? What would the liturgy be like? What would we sing? What would our polity be? What would our doctrine be? I mean, to say that every Christian, that's impossible. What are you talking about? So it's, it's, a, it's easier. What they were saying is easier said than done. But, I, but at the same time, it is, a, it is a valid and good work to think through how can the Christians who are all in one place express their unity in the body? That's a really good thing to think through. And I don't claim to have a lot of great answers in heaven it'll you know we'll be okay that'll be nice how do we how do we point people toward that now i don't know but if you guys become ministers you will need to think through how to relate to other churches in your city that's a great thing to think through and i will encourage you wherever you can have a good relationship with another gospel church please do it because you, you'll want friends and you'll want allies absolutely mm-hmm Um, yeah. I had one new pastor come to town, and I just wanted to greet him and welcome him and take him out to lunch. And um, at our first time meeting, he told me he was a universalist. Okay. 
there's probably not a lot our churches can do together. And he, he denied the doctrine of hell entirely. He denied su uh, penal substitution. He did, so he did not believe that Jesus absorbed the wrath of the Father on the cross. I mean, he was just well outside of orthodoxy. Hmm? So that was kind of the end of that. There wasn't a lot we could do there. Um, you know, I think a lot of it comes, yeah, yeah, the, so Ted, who's a friend of mine for Calvary, is Calvary Chapel present around here? Calvary Chapel, is that denomination present? In Kenya it is? Yeah. Um, I, I like a lot of Calvary Chapel guys. We're different in some ways, but I, I know the denomination well enough to know that they're brothers, you know, um, and we agree on all of the major things, so I, I have no problem associating with them. So a lot of it is just researching maybe the group of churches they're a part of, but then just, just get to know guys. I've just made a habit of when a, when a new pastor comes to town, I take him out to coffee or lunch and just, just get to know him. Yeah. Um, you know, different views on end times. Okay, that's fine. I'm, I'm friends with cessationists. That's fine. You know, it's, I mean, you, you just, you learn to discern what are hills to die on and not. Um, yeah, we're, I'm going to die. I'm, you know, the Trinity, we need the Trinity. We need the, the authority of Scripture. Yes. Um, you know, things like that. But uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of leeway when it, when it comes to just linking arms with other churches in town. Yeah, I think you can, be, you can be pretty loose. They don't have to be just like you. Um, Apostles' Creed is a good place to start. But go from there. We're the only Reformed continuationist church in town, so if we were only friends with people just like us, we'd have no friends. We have, we have people in our church who um, disagree with some aspects of our statement of faith, and that's okay as, as members. Um, you could come to our church and be a Wesleyan dispensationalist, you know, cessationist, and, and still technically be a member in good standing at our church, very different from our doctrine. As far as eldership goes specifically, the elders of Sovereign Grace do have a, a specific statement of faith that they need to sign off on, and it's, it's like the full sta denominational statement of faith. So what we've done, the whole little white book, mm-hmm. And, and the full one um, for elders. Yeah. But also, I mean, let me add this as well. We have one guy in the church. Um, have, you, have you all read anything by Steve Wellam, Dr. Steve Wellam? Okay. Steve Wellam's editor is a member at our church. He's like a, he's a brilliant man. He did his PhD at Southern Seminary. And um, he's also a Harvard lawyer. Like, he's just a really smart guy and he can sign off on 100% of our doctrine with the exception he says ah, I think what he calls himself a qualified cessationist okay okay so we've been meeting lately what I what I've learned
I think, can be solved with conversation. I think that more often than not, that, that's just, that we're talking about the same thing, but we call it something different. With, with, a, with a lot of things between cessation. I think, I think that the difference between continuationist and cessationist is not like this. I think it can be like, like this, <laughs> like really, really close. So we're talking with Michael, his name is Michael, um, and I'm explaining what I mean to, this is what I understand prophecy is and is not and these sorts of things. And he's listening to everything, oh, okay, okay, okay. And he's realizing, well, I, pretty, I believe all of that, but we just, we don't call it that, okay. So um, we are working hard to make room for him to be an elder. <laughs> Because we want him really badly, but um, yeah. But at, at the end of the day, denominationally, we have we have a statement of faith that uh, all the elders sign off on. but we're very, we keep it under very close watch. So um, it's the sort of thing that I, uh, the, the cessationists at our church are very comfortable, is what I'm trying to say. They're very comfortable because I think, um, because we are conservative continuationists. I would call that, if I were to categorize that, I would maybe say that that was a timely word of wisdom to share with you all. I wasn't planning on sharing it, um, but I woke up this morning with a heavy burden to do so. Now, a, now a cessationist would do this, could do the exact same thing, but he might talk about it differently. You know, through some thought and prayer, I think it would be helpful to share this lesson with you all. Okay, that's what I'm saying too. Um, I, might be, I might be calling it something different I might be using more, I guess, charismatic language and saying, I, I, I believe the Lord impressed me to share this with you all, you know. Um, and I mean, another example, in a cessationist church, it would be totally normal for me to come up to you and say, brother, um, I just really want to share this passage with you, and I, and I hope it ministers to you. Okay, that's pretty normal. Where I might, the way I would prefer to say it is, I was reading scripture this morning and the Lord laid you on my heart and I believe it would please God to share this with you and I hope it ministers to you. That sounds a little bit more spontaneous and charismatic and, and that's what I believe. So anyway, but both of those things could happen in both of those contexts and we, just might, we might talk about it differently. But the same thing happens. Uh, it's funny to me, even at very cessationist churches, 
when anytime someone says, well, the Lord led me to do this. I say, how? Where? What verse, right? You know, I mean, we would, all, we would all admit that God leads his people in ways other than just the printed text. He grants peace. He, you know, he grants wisdom, these sorts of things in the moment. We would, we would all affirm that. Anyway, it's a longer, I'm, just, I'm, I'm kind of rambling now. It's a longer discussion. My short answer is... Um,
twice a year. We choose a name randomly. <laughs> no, no. We, okay, so in our church, we have only ever had one time when we actually had formal church discipline. And it was awful. It was, it was a horrible thing. I won't, even, I won't even tell you the story, but a man turned out to be a, a very bad guy. Um, and when we first started church discipline with him, he left. It, it, it's very rare that anybody actually stays and stays a member long enough to actually go through the entire process. Um, but we do, we do have avenues for church discipline. Basically, if, if a member is in unrepentant sin and they've been confronted by the elders, they've been met with, they've been given work to do, and like this is where we need, we need you to improve if you're gonna remain an elder of the, or a member of the church. And if they refuse to do it, yeah, we have the ability to remove them from the fellowship. We've never had to, it's never come to that. Again, the only person that we ever tried, that we ever initiated church discipline with, he disappeared, he took off. Um, but yeah, we do which I think that's one important part of membership. You can't place non-members under church discipline, especially in the United States legally. If you try to place a non-member under church discipline, everybody sues each other in the United States, and, and churches have shut down because they try to discipline somebody who's not a member. They turn around and go to court with the church and take, take all their money, and it's, it's horrible. So um, that's one purpose that membership serves. Someone commits to, yes, I will, I will support this church and, and support the doctrine of this church. Well, when they stop doing that, you can say, hey, um, you committed to doing this, and now you're way out of line. What are we going to do about it? And you start the church discipline process. And as of right now, um, legal systems and, ju and judges in America will still honor a, a signed church covenant. And they will, that, that's admissible in court. And so, they, and so people can't <clears throat> shut down churches legally if they've joined the church. So, yeah, we've, um, we've never had to, I mean, we did remove that guy from membership, but he was already gone. A big name in uh, Nine Marks, um, Michael Hinson. Do you know that name, Michael Hinson? No, Michael Lawrence, I'm sorry. Michael Lawrence, he wrote Biblical Theology in the Life of the Church. He pastors Hinson Baptist Church in Portland, Oregon. He lives in the, um, the highest um, gay per capita community in the United States.
so, so membership is a, is a way to protect the church um, legally as well. But no, if someone who is in the church, um, who is living in, they haven't joined the church, but they're living in sin, yeah, we, we would try to confront them and talk to them. Um, it's just when, when the membership covenant is in place, they may not stay, but they do, they do have the obligation to stay and, and work to figure it out. And the other members of the church will pursue them as well. Where someone who just shows up to church once a month, maybe twice a month, but they're not really part of the body, it's, it's, it's like, oh, what, what can we do? I don't know. This person, it's like the difference between living with a person and actually getting married. Like they've not, they've not committed themselves here and they can, they can leave at any time. Um, where if someone has joined the church, there's an understood obligation. They stand before the church. They make vows to the church. And that way, everybody knows if this person is ever in trouble or in sin, we are all going to come and help them. So that's, that's typically how that works. But yes, we, we, would, we would, of course, we would want to address sin in anybody. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'll tell you one example of something that happened in our church. Um, we had a husband and wife join the church. I did their wedding. Do you all know the expression shotgun wedding? Anybody know that expression? Okay. I, wa I want you to imagine this. Imagine this in your mind. A man and woman are getting married and standing behind them is the father of the bride holding a shotgun because they got things out of order. Um, usually the woman becomes pregnant first. And then the, so the father with the shotgun, you're going to marry her, right? <laughs> okay. That's a shotgun, that's a shotgun wedding. So this was a shotgun wedding. And, and, they're, and they're a precious couple. They're faithful members of the church. But early on in their marriage especially, they had some very hard times. And he dealt with anger. I, oh, he was such an angry guy. Um, You two are going to start a devotional life together. You will be reading your Bible and, and praying together. We help them put some things in place that would actually be healthy for their marriage to, to help preserve it and save it that they didn't have before. And it came from church leadership. It's like you're a member of this church. You've committed to biblical morality. We're going to help you. Here's what you need. And they did. They submitted to it. And, and um, they're doing pretty well now. So that was, a, that was church discipline. We, we tend to think of church discipline as always a bad thing. Like, oh no, they're under church discipline. They're, they're going to be kicked out. No, that, that's, 
the, the goal of church discipline is to bring someone back. Um, and in that case, it did. It brought them back. We gave them some really helpful steps and said, if you are going to continue as members in good standing in this church, we, we need you to follow this plan. And they did. Um, so, it, so it's very situational. It can look different ways. It can look different ways. That's how it looked in that case. But I think it's, it's the elders providing structure for this is, what, this is what we need to see happen to fix this. And you need, you need to follow it. Um, you know, if, if a man is living with another woman, step one, <laughs> stop it. Move out. Come back to your wife. You know, I mean, things like that. It's, it's the elders saying, if we're going to continue in relationship with you, we need to see some changes. And, and here's what they are.